This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think I'll start out today's program by noting that in our second segment today, this is by way of forward promotion, we're going to have our good friend Bill Simpich return to talk to us about the breaking news regarding the Mary Farrell Society's um, lawsuit to try and compel the federal government to comply with the JFK Records Act and release documents that people would like to see. And uh, Bill stands ready to join us uh, in about a half an hour. You're not going to want to miss that. But I think I really want to start out today's program with some, I found to be rather stunning news, which is that as we stand before the microphone at the moment, uh, we're contemplating President Biden delivering his State of the Union address, which presidents do on an annual basis. Apparently, President Joe Biden, according to reports, is going to go on the attack against big tech in an effort to unite lawmakers, it said, in Washington, who are concerned about the industry's unprecedented influence and impact on all facets of American life, to which we say, good God, thank you. We have been talking about this for years on this program. I don't think we can take credit for the president's uh, actions today, but I can tell you, it looks like we're on the same page on this one. Quoting from the East Bay Times, piece by Ethan Barron, it's noted that Biden has already deployed fighting words against Silicon Valley, alleging in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed that some major technology industry players collect, share, and exploit our most personal data, comma, deepen extremism and polarization in our country, comma, tilt our economy's playing field, comma, violate the civil rights of women and minorities, comma, and even put our children at risk, full stop. Can't disagree with that. The president apparently has identified priorities for his administration's approach to major internet companies, including Google, Twitter, and Facebook, which is limiting the collection and use of our personal data, boosting their liability for content posted on their websites by third parties, and limiting their size and power through increased enforcement of antitrust laws. Thank you, Tim Wu. Tim Wu has written extensively about big tech. He's a, he's a lawyer. He specializes in antitrust, and I hope, I hope he's turned loose on some of these companies to see if he can't rein them in just a bit. Now, last month, the U.S. Department of Justice sued to break up Google, accusing it of monopolizing key digital advertising technologies through anti-competitive and exclusionary conduct, such as buying up competitors and using its dominance to force publishers and advertisers to use its products. The Federal Trade Commission is trying to block Microsoft from buying video game company Activision Blizzard and it's in a $69 billion deal. And this month, the agency lost a court battle to stop Meta gobbling up virtual reality startup Within. The article notes that Biden's bid to limit companies' collection of Internet users' data threatens the lifeblood of Google and Facebook, which have grown to dominance. Google takes 29% of the world's digital ads, while Facebook takes 11% through sale of personal information to advertisers. We are the product, ladies and gentlemen, when we are Facebook subscribers. We are being sold to companies. I know this isn't exactly news to most of you, but doggone it, Mr. Miller, I don't think we can say it enough times here on the show to just put that message across. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Biden was listening. I don't know. We'll have to see what the president uh, does say 
today and uh, talk about it on next week's program. I was frankly a bit dismayed to look right next to that headline regarding Biden's potential attack on big tech and note that uh, there's been another large earthquake in Turkey. Apparently 3,400 people and counting have died in this latest tremor. Apparently the city of Adana in Turkey was, was especially hit hard. In 1999, yours truly was in Adana, Turkey, and afterwards I departed into Syria back when that was actually possible to do, and no sooner had I left when they had an earthquake then. I I really wonder at this point how many casualties can be attributed to the fact that real estate developers in Turkey have been building like crazy, and apparently, well, my guess is, not paying close enough attention to earthquake standards. I was in Istanbul, last August and was stunned to see the amount of real estate development that's taking place in the Turkish city, which was long its capital. At the moment, the Turkish capital has been moved to Ankara, but I think it was no less than Napoleon who once pointed out that um, if Europe, if the Western nations were to have a capital, it would have to be Istanbul. His reasoning, I think, was that it was the crossroads of the world then and to a significant degree, I think, still is. Anyway, we hope it's not too bad in Turkey and I hope all these casualties didn't result from the fact that they just built and built and built and didn't pay enough attention to what, how they should be building, but we'll have to see what the subsequent news reports say about that. There was much talk uh, 20-something years ago about them putting too much sand in the concrete, which is especially ironic if you think about it, because we talked on last week's program, or the week before, I'm not sure which, about the fact that the Romans knew how to do concrete. <laughs> they did concrete 2,000 years ago better than we do now. Yeah, the Romans apparently went light on the sand. Anyway, let's, let's take things a little more relaxed here. I have in front of me a meme that was posted by Radio Parallax's very first guest. 20-some-odd years ago, we, uh, we spoke with Sacramento's colorful character, Mr. Ed Hunter. We actually had Ed on many times, and, and probably should again, Mr. McMillan. He's, he's, always, uh, he's always a fun guest. One of my favorites. Anyway, Ed posted a meme. That shows a rather smug-looking cat. And the text is, Somebody asked me if I went out of my way to piss people off. And I said, Trust me, it's not out of my way. Thank you, Mr. Hunter. And as I was taking apart last year's Old Farmer's Almanac, having just bought the 2023 edition, I was extracting a few interesting articles from last year's magazine and came across a brief amusement section, which is, I think, perfect for Radio Parallax. Asked the old farmer's almanac, why is it you never see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery? Why is it abbreviated is such a bloody long word? Why isn't there a mouse-flavored cat food? It's a fair question. As is, why do you have to click Start to stop Windows? And my personal favorite among these minor amusements... Why is it that packaged lemon juice is made with artificial flavor while dishwashing liquid is made with real lemon juice? And I do want to answer the query of a listener who wanted to know how it was Mr. Miller and I had managed to reanimate Eli Wallach for last week's program. <laughs> and I think I, I, I had to reply that uh, we don't like to talk about it, but Mr. Miller and I are occasionally able to raise the dead. No, it pains us to admit that's, that's not actually true. <laughs> we, we were pleased to be able to go to our archives and retrieve from 2006 the interview we conducted with the immortal Eli Wallach. 
But I guess the fault lies in the fact that I'm sometimes a bit slow in labeling <laughs> what, what is on our website at radioparallax.com. I will try to do better in the future. And while it might not quite rank up with Raising the Dead, I have three items in front of me that are, I think, rather remarkable and bits of good news. And we've been a little, little suffering of late for quality items of good news. So we'll see if we can't make up for that. Now, the way this first piece is framed doesn't seem like good news, but, but, but it is. Evidently, researcher Jim Salas from the University of California in San Diego told the Wall Street Journal recently that according to their study, physical activity of almost any amount, even as little as 11 minutes over a whole week, significantly reduces a person's risk for severe coronavirus infection. Co-author Salas said, you don't have to run, you don't have to sweat. You don't have to do anything except get up and go out for a walk. That's what most people do, and we see how much protection they're getting from that, which, which is a very sad commentary on how much suffering took place because people were getting no exercise. Now, this isn't a very strong study. It was based on, a, on a, an examination of 200,000 adult COVID patients in Southern California who self-reported on their exercise habits. Still, this sets the bar pretty low, folks, but tells you that you know any amount of exercise, even a small amount of exercise, is very useful. And, and you know, I think that as a medical doctor, I've, I've, I've said it before and I say it again right now, one of the few things in the world that's all it's cracked up to be is exercise. Turns out not only does it make you feel better, it actually protects you against disease. So, folks, get up off of that thing. Get up off of that thing and dance to do you better. Get up off of that thing and dance to do sing it now. Get up off of that thing and dance to do you better. Get up off of that thing and try to release that pressure. And yes, we do love any opportunity we may be afforded this program to insert a little clip of James Brown. Ow! And here's a piece from New Scientist magazine that's really slapped me upside the head. Could it be that ultrasound can rejuvenate cells? Well, some preliminary studies in mice suggest that maybe it can. Article by Michael LePage in the January 21st issue of the magazine notes that treatment with low-frequency ultrasound has restarted cell division in aging human cells and reinvigorated old mice. To quote from the piece, low-frequency ultrasound appears to have a rejuvenating effect on animals as well as restarting cell division in aging human cells. It has invigorated old mice, improving their physical performance in tests such as running on a treadmill and making at least one old mouse with a hunched back move back around normally again. A study at the University of Texas Medical Branch quotes a Michael Sheets as saying, is this too good to be true? That's the question I often ask. Well, we, we don't know for sure yet, but it certainly appears to work for at least one hunchback mouse. The piece notes that after a certain number of divisions known as the Hayflick limit, cells in our bodies stop dividing and become senescent. Stresses like toxic chemicals can also make cells become senescent. This can have a knockoff effect because some senescent cells secrete chemicals that cause inflammation or induce senescence in other cells. The growing proportion of senescent cells in various tissues in our bodies as we get older is thought to be one of the main reasons of aging and age-related disease. 
For this reason, many people are trying to develop treatments that involve killing off senescent cells. Whoa, cowboy. We got to be careful with that. And another approach could be to use low-frequency ultrasound to rejuvenate them. Holy Ponce de Leon, Batman. Story reports that Sheets and his team found that low-frequency ultrasound makes senescent cells from monkeys and humans resume dividing and halt their secretion of chemicals that promote senescence in other cells. The researchers use ultrasound, we should note, with a frequency of less than 100 kilohertz. This is well below the 2,000 kilohertz or so that are commonly used in medical imaging, ultrasound machines. It was noted here that human foreskin cells usually show signs of senescence after about 15 divisions, for instance, but with ultrasound treatments, they reach 24 divisions with no signs of abnormalities. No, Ms. Millen, I don't know where they obtained the foreskin cells, but I can't resist taking a detour into the old joke about the Moyle, who's inquired about the fact that at his place of business, he had a violin in the front window. Now, the Moyle, of course, is the rabbi that removes the, the youngster's foreskin as part of the Jewish ritual. Asked why it was he had a violin in the front window, the Moyle replied, What should I put in the window? Anyway, I realize this is tentative research. It's, it's, not, it's not terribly convincing. It's not a big study, but damn, damn. What if this one holds up? I really got my fingers crossed. Of course, nobody's sure why ultrasound should have such an effect. Uh, the researcher Sheets said that his hypothesis is that the physical distortion of cells by ultrasound has effects similar to that of exercise. In particular, it may be reactivating the waste disposal systems inside of cells, which tends to grind to a halt in senescent cells. And wouldn't it be wonderful if there was something that we just had no idea even existed, but does exist and might be able to sequester away vast amounts of carbon in the Earth's crust. It's something else that seems too good to be true. But in another article from the January 28th issue of New Scientist, we have a study of ocean avalanches that really needs to get talked about here for just a bit. The subheadline in the piece by Kate Revilius is, Quote, vast mysterious currents can drag huge amounts of silt into the depths reshaping the seafloor. We're finally getting to grips with these mighty marine movements, unquote. Notes the piece. In November of 1929, a huge earthquake in the Grand Banks off the south coast of Newfoundland in Canada sent tremors as far away as New York. As the seafloor shook, a vast quantity of sand and mud began to stir up and flow down a canyon. It gathered momentum as it went, creating a dramatic underwater avalanche. It involved enough material to make two Mount Everests and triggered a tsunami that killed more than 25 people. This is the biggest known example of an undersea avalanche, but it wasn't a one-off. Beneath the waves, the largest avalanches in the world regularly occur in Earth's coasts and oceans, carving out the deepest and longest canyons on our planet. Most often, they happen without anybody noticing. The only witnesses to these events were fish and deep-sea creatures, which might have been carried out to sea or fed by the nutrient-rich sediments that the currents carry with them. More recently, ruptured gas pipelines and broken communication cables were proof that something extreme was going on. Now notes the piece, thanks to a series of experiments and a bit of luck, we've captured these earth-carving events in action. It turns out the mazes of underwater canyons, many of which were long thought to be geologically inactive, are anything but. 
Armed with new data, researchers have begun to piece together a better picture of what submarine avalanches are like, how they shape the Earth, and their vital role in locking away the carbon currently warming our world. There's a lot here that surprised me. Notes the piece, the deepest and longest canyon systems on the planet are similar in scale and shape to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. But unlike their counterparts on land, carved out by constant scouring action of sand and gravel, which is carried by rivers, underwater canyons are created by erratic avalanches that cascade off the continental shelf down into the deep ocean. Now rivers dump silt onto the continental shelf where it heaps up, eventually becoming unstable. It sometimes topples after being given a shove by an earthquake, a storm or a flood, and tumbles off the shelf and sculpts the canyon system as it goes. Notes the piece. The sediment flows, also known as turbidity currents, transport more material than any other natural process on Earth. I want to read that one again. Turbidity currents transport more material than any other natural process on Earth. And the best part, they carry sediments rich in organic carbon and sweep up debris as they go, including decaying seaweed, plant material, and marine life. As they swoosh onto the abyssal plain, the flat area that covers more than actually 50% of planet Earth, our seafloor, these flows create a mosaic of specialized habits. They expose methane-bearing sediments in some regions while smothering other areas to create lobes of oxygen-free mud. This unusual environment supports diverse and unique ecosystems, including specialized chemosynthetic communities like tube worms and clams that are usually found near hydrothermal vents where they're sustained by hydrogen sulfide and methane, but evidently there's other places where they can thrive as well. Who knew? The piece quotes a David Hodgson, a geologist at the University of Leeds in the UK, as saying, we've not been able to collect information from these massive flows, partly because they are rare and unpredictable, and partly because they trash our equipment. Here's another jaw-dropper. A small proportion of the 9,000 or so submarine canyons we know of are still connected to river mouths on the coast. A small proportion, about three-quarters, became detached from the rivers when sea levels rose following the last glacial period, and now these detached canyons lie far out to sea. Research in the, in the UK started plant planting sensors in a submarine canyon that's most accessible to the British Isles, known as Wittard Canyon, and were surprised to find that the most activity that they uncovered took place in spring. They thought it would be in autumn or winter when storms started. The suspicion here is that these turbidity currents are being fed by blooms of algae at the head of canyons, said one of the researchers. Most of the world's canyons provide a focal point for upwelling, where surface ocean currents draw up cool, nutrient-rich waters from the deep and create a productive region teeming with life. Said the researcher, it's why you get whales near the heads of canyons, which is certainly the case here in the Monterey Deep Sea Canyon, located in the middle of Monterey Bay. Regions like this draw a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into organic matter. But for the carbon to be locked away for good, it needs to reach the deep ocean quickly before it has a chance to be oxidized back into CO2. Canyons like Wittard might provide a previously unrecognized superhighway for marine carbon to get to the ocean floor. The piece notes that in October of 2019, Durham University in the UK set out to capture another underwater avalanche. This time their target was uh, the floor of the Congo submarine canyon, which apparently lies within the estuary of the Congo River on the west coast of Africa. 
and they set some moorings that were way out to sea, in some cases out 1,200 kilometers offshore at a depth of 5,000 meters. They went out and set these uh, moorings up, meant to stay put for a year, carrying instruments to monitor the water column and the sediments that are flowing beneath them. But it turns out a few months later in January 2020, something curious happened. The researchers received alerts that the moorings had popped up to the surface. At first, they said, we thought maybe one or two of the moorings had been disturbed by fishing boats. But one by one, in a regular fashion, each mooring sent an automated email to say it had surfaced. We started to think something major had happened, and they were right. A sediment avalanche had started at the mouth of the Congo River, and it moved, gathering speed, reaching about 30 kilometers per hour. It turned into a large underwater flow that traveled for more than... (laughs) 1,130 kilometers, making this the longest sediment flow ever measured. It carried a huge amount of sediment and dumped it onto the South Atlantic abyssal plain at a depth of more than 5,000 meters. This is interesting, interesting stuff. And the part I love about this is we had no idea this was really going on on the scale that it's going on. And yet, as the piece notes, Turbidity currents transport more material than any other natural process on Earth. Wouldn't it be nice if large amounts of carbon could be stuck on the floor of the ocean and left there to slow global warming? The piece notes that the Congo Canyon study made geologists rethink just how monumental these flows can be. They quoted a researcher saying, Our estimates suggest that the equivalent of one-third of the sediment eroded by all the rivers in the world in one year was flushed down this canyon in one single event lasting just a couple of days. Noted author Kate Revelis, All in all, there seems to be a lot more going on than we ever realized. Anyway, it shows you how little we know about the natural world. Surprises arise all the time, and this one, this one has the potential to be a really pleasant surprise, so I certainly hope this natural phenomenon can help out homo sapiens as we ravage mother earth because frankly we need some help and speaking of natural phenomenon and we certainly are yours truly was quite stunned a night or two ago when i looked out and observed the moon rising behind the hill behind my house and observed that it had just just cleared the top of the hill well, not a few minutes later, and noted that the moon had now reversed directions and was now moving to the east because it was now, again, partly hidden by the hillside. Now, of course, this was a rather puzzling observation because normally the moon does not reverse directions as it moves around the planet. Well, now we got to get a little more detailed. The moon is always moving to the east in its orbit. That's what it does. It moves to the east. But it appears like it's rising in the east and setting in the west because the Earth is rotating so much faster. Anyway, the moon's sudden acceleration in its motion uh, did catch me by surprise. So I went out and took a closer look and discovered that a large black cloud had moved up underneath the moon. And doggone it, looked exactly like the hillside, giving the false appearance that the moon was going the wrong way. Thus, I was saved from having to call up astronomer Bob Berman to demand an explanation. And before we're done today, we'll probably have a little revisit with former Radio Parallax guest Bob Berman, at least his writing. At this juncture, I think I'd like to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. And note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Avenging Angels with the news that a thief 
who attempted to steal a statue of St. Michael from a church in Mexico, tripped during his getaway and was stabbed in the neck by the statue's sword. Yes, reportedly Carlos Alonso, age 32, is now recovering in a Mexican hospital while St. Michael is reportedly unharmed. And it was evidently a bad week for past lives, or at least in this case, the past life of Representative George Santos. When, wouldn't you know it, photos and other evidence surfaced showing that the U.S. rep had indeed performed as a drag queen in Brazil under the stage name Kitara Raveche. Representative Santos, whose party, the GOP, has denounced drag queens as, quote, groomers, unquote, has conceded dressing in drag at one festival, to which he added, oh, sue me for having a life. As far as we know, officials of the Republican Party are standing by their man. And finally, it was an ugly week, I guess last week, for technology. Let's call it technology. With the news that the Minichaug Regional High School, which is in Massachusetts, has not been able to turn off its 7,000 lights for the past 17 months. Yes, it turns out a software failure in its smart lighting system, apparently not so smart, cannot be fixed because of a parts shortage. Now, officials at the school have conceded that constantly burning lights are costing taxpayers a significant amount of money, but they say they found a firm that's supposed to fix the system sometime this month. And uh, since we spoke to you last, dear listener, the National Football League held a championship game for both the NFC and the AFC. And I think both games have, have left observers wondering if some of these games are fixed. The gambling industry in this country is exploding, and it seems pretty undeniable that gambling interests, uh, well, they, they have a lot of power, and they have a lot of potential to change the outcome of games to make more money. The New York Times is reporting that Americans lost a record $55 billion in casinos and mobile gaming apps in the first 11 months of last year. That's 13% more than the year before, even before the December numbers have been tallied. While slot machines and table games generated $43 billion in revenue, sports books generated $6.6 billion, a 65% increase over the year before. And while we haven't done a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking here on this program, after watching a game where your starting quarterback, who's been a hero, coming off the bench, leading the team to seven straight victories, gets popped in the elbow on the first series of downs, and then can no longer throw the ball. Then the guy that was the fourth-string quarterback is brought in and gets a concussion, after which he could no longer play. Well, it was pretty clear by, uh, by halftime that uh, the 49ers were not going to win that game. And yet, Jimmy Garoppolo reportedly could have been activated for the game, but he wasn't. Now, I'm not a professional football coach, and that's for sure, but, you know, I don't know how anybody can be expected to win a game when you have no quarterbacks. We do need to take a short break, so let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 